Um, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> Today is very exciting. I am joined by an expert in public speaking, community leadership, conflict resolution, strategic planning, nonprofit operations, <laughs> management coaching, among many other things. She is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2020 Georgia Outstanding Individual. Um, she was an honorary, uh, the inaugural honorary member of National Coalition of 100 Black Men, and she has received a, oops, sorry, she has received a U.S. Congressional Certificate of Special Recognition, and that's not it, okay? <laughs> she is also- You have to go through all that before. <laughs> She is also the founder of uh, the HR Group Incorporated, and she was unanimously voted um, to be the current national president and CEO of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Whew. There's so much more I could say, but <laughs> thank you for being here, Mrs. Beverly Evans-Smith. How are you? How are you? <laughs> thank you for that. You didn't have to go through that whole thing, but I appreciate it. I feel like you got to give people their props when they're deserved, you know? <laughs> true, true. <laughs> oh, man. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Mm -hmm. as, as well as to be expected under these environments, huh? Obviously, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's rough. It's rough stuff. Um, hmm. Where should we even start? <laughs> what uh, can I tell you? Which of your activities at this moment is like taking up the most of your time or the bulk of your energy? Oh gosh, Delta Sigma Theta. Mm -hmm. um, I retired last year, I think. Uh, I was the state director and assistant commissioner for adult education for Georgia, but trying to do both got to be a bit much. Luckily, I was uh, retirement eligible and after doing both for about 18 months, Mm -hmm. I, I cried uncle and decided to uh, focus on Delta Sigma Theta, but it was time. It was time. Yeah. It was past retirement time. So it was time to do this. So that's right where, where both of my energies go. Yeah. And how is um, Delta Sigma Theta responding or reacting to, you know, the current state of the nation? Oh, gosh. Uh, on all fronts. Um, mm -hmm. You know, everything is politics. I hate to say that, uh, but it is. So in addition to, um, you know, a lot of our effort really is on the social action initiatives around COVID-19. COVID mm -hmm. uh, you would hope that there weren't, but our state of affairs in terms of people of color really comes to light with COVID. And it mm -hmm. really forces us, we should have before, and I think we have, but it brings to light for everybody, the issues around uh, social inequities that are taking place in terms Absolutely. of healthcare, in terms of even, you know, the census, part of what happens with the census and where people are counted, uh, grocery stores, hospitals, the kinds of facilities we need now, really that population is based on the census. They put those things, schools, internet service, they put those things in areas where they think people live. And if you don't complete that census and people don't know you're there, uh, we don't count if we don't make sure we get counted in that census. And mm. so when I take a look at that, and it's the inequities are, are definitely there now, money, power, politics are all related to the census. Uh, and if, in fact, they don't see that people in need live in areas or that people even live in areas, period, mm. then that's not where the resources are going to go. And I think the fact that we lack resources uh, is um, a, 
a critical issue in this in terms of how people survive and how people manage. Economically, obviously, it's been an impact on us because we are the essential workers. Now, here's the sad thing. Mm -hmm. People who are essential workers make the least money. Absolutely. But the country could not run without essential workers. And, you know, and that's that's been the case for a while with teachers and and police, quite honestly, Mm -hmm. and and fire departments, people like that who really are essential to making sure this this country runs uh, have never been given that recognition they need, which is a part of our problem with what's happening now in, in terms of the area of policing. But for us, with COVID, it's really brought those things to light. So the the sad, the, the very sad part in, in COVID is a totally sad situation is that it brings those things in the open. People have to live those every day. Psychologically, it's uh, causing a lot of conflict. Emotionally, it causes conflict. You hate to say it, but families being in a house together sometimes causes domestic violence issues that they did not know were there before because people were able to get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really are trying to focus on what those issues are uh, in terms of trying to change legislation, for one, to make sure this doesn't happen in the future. But also, even though we have to social distance, Deltas are trying their communities to do what they can to make sure they provide monies, that they help provide food, uh, that they make. We have some chapters that are making masks for people and started doing that early on. Uh, We have, I think about, I think it was about 14, 20% of our population are essential workers. So we did a poll to see exactly how how our members are doing and try to find ways to to work with them and fix them uh, in terms of giving them some help. But it has brought out, sadly, but the opportunity in COVID is that we see those things, they've come to light. Uh, it's, it is very sad that the situation with George Floyd happened at the same time. So we now have the pandemic of racism that has come to light. It's always been there, uh, mm-hmm. but I think watching uh, nine minutes and, and 46 seconds of that is uh, really live on TV. I just can't even imagine. Um, has really brought to light the issue that racism has and the additional inequities that are there. So, you know, we're facing um, a economic pandemic, we're facing a pandemic in racism, we're Mm -hmm. facing a a pandemic in terms of emotional and spiritual needs that people have. Uh, So it is a very difficult time, but one that we have to look at as an opportunity. And that's where we miss the boat. We cannot let it get us down. We have to find a way to use this pandemic to help lift us up. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that we come together in that uplift to make sure the new normal we have, because it will be a new normal, Absolutely. is not where we are today. And we've all got a responsibility to do that. And Delta has a responsibility to do that. Mm. I 100% agree with what you've said. Um, how how are you personally leaning on community to help you so that you don't get down, so that you keep doing the work that's necessary despite all the emotional sort of trauma that's coming up for us? Um, well, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, you're saying, how is, how is the community helping me? Is that what you're asking? Well, yes, or yeah. Um, well, I'm, I think I'm more focused on helping the community and I think in helping the community and helping our stores determine what to do uh, is uplifting for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we do have, it's, it's a sisterhood and so, as we come together to work on this, I think we try to make sure we're each lifted up. I have sources who pray for me every day mm. and they let me know they have. I just got off a call with one that did. So uh, they are very supportive in making sure that I don't get down in terms of what we're doing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have, uh, you know, I have family and my husband's here. We've got two children and five grandchildren. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they regularly check in, FaceTime, all those kinds of things to make sure the old people are okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that we're surviving this whole thing. So I, you know, I have tried not to let it get me down. I don't think, I think I've seen enough ups and downs to know this is not going to last always. Uh, and if I focused on it, and focused mm-hmm. on the bad side of it, I think that you do wind up staying in a dark place. And you have to mentally not allow that to happen to yourself because you can't help yourself or anybody else if you stay in that spot. So Absolutely. regardless of how bad the situation, I think we always have to remember that uh, uh, joy comes in the morning, if you will, biblically speaking. But also we've got to make sure that whatever we need to make us uh, stay focused and pumped, if you will, in an isolated environment that we do. Taking care of yourself is first and foremost. You can't do anything for anybody unless you do. Uh, But I also truly believe that God has a purpose in everything he does. There's a purpose in this and understanding that and understanding and trying to play the role that I need to play in that purpose in terms of how I need to respond and act in it is where I have to stay focused in my own head. Mm. Definitely. I definitely believe that uh, you can't pour into others if your cup is empty. You cannot. You cannot. But you got to fill up your own cup. That's the hard part sometimes. uh, (laughs) Because sometimes there's nobody else there to fill it up for you, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially in the situation. And you really have to find a way to feel good and comfortable with you. Mm -hmm. And being your own best friend is a part of that. And sometimes we don't necessarily like ourselves. Uh, we have to find a plus and a positive in terms of why we should and uh, go with that. Whatever you have is yours. You have to uh, determine and be comfortable with what you have and not look at what somebody else has and thinks it's better because they have their own burden to deal with. So mm. uh, being uh, comfortable with being alone. And, you know, some people are learning that for the first time. Some people don't like to be alone. Definitely. Uh, and so for them, they're used to being around a lot of people spending time with yourself is is not necessarily that pleasant (laughs) so this gives us a chance to understand a little bit better about who you are and how you react to things when you are on your own but it's it's not necessarily easy i have so little quiet time i actually enjoy quiet time i still haven't had any but um (laughs) that's the introvert in me uh being comfortable with that but Mm -hmm. you got to come to terms with you and not let somebody else tell you who you are you can't let anybody else define you. And that's, uh, that's a problem I think sometimes we have, especially in this world of social media. That's the bad part about it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Um, so you've done a lot in education mm-hmm. throughout your career. And I wonder what pulled you towards that? Uh, well, I started out when I was in college. Um, I was very active in college and uh, I had a we had a president that I was very involved in and, and uh, active with. I was the first student on student member of our board of trustees. Mm. And uh, and that was a very long time ago because that's pretty common these days. But uh, that and the faculty that I dealt with, the deans I had as I was involved in student government, all said, you know, you really ought to look going into higher ed in university administration. And I did that. Uh, I never intended to teach necessarily, but I did uh, work in higher ed. But while I was working on my master's degree, because I had a teaching certificate, I I taught for a year 
that was about that was about it. I mm -hmm. I um, uh, commend and respect teachers every day. It was not necessarily my calling. I like to teach people in other ways, but not necessarily in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But so I started out in higher ed then, and uh, stayed in higher ed for about eight years, and then moved to corporate environment. My area of focus actually is uh, organizational restructure redesign. Mm. So when I was in higher ed, I actually worked at universities to help them redesign pieces of the organization. And when I was doing that at Georgia State, someone from uh, Southern Bell at the time, AT&T, saw that I had restructured the student affairs department and asked if I would come and do the same thing at, um, at Southern Bell. And okay. so I left there and went into corporate America. They offered a whole lot more money than I made, you know, that teacher thing, higher mm -hmm. ed thing. And I stayed there for about 16 years and uh, did that. And every job I had, every promotion, every move I made was always a different position, but it always came back to looking at an organization, getting a feel and a gut for it and figuring out how it could work better. And throughout my career, whether it was there, I started out as a retail buyer. The only thing, good thing I got out of that experience was my husband, because we met, we were both interns at a department store, but that's, that's, a, that's a very difficult life. But from there to um, working for Delta Sigma Theta, because I did at that time as I do now in a different world, uh, and back in uh, higher ed, uh, but wherever I went, throughout my career, regardless of which discipline it was in, whether it was a nonprofit or government or education or corporate, I always wound up in positions where this basic skill set I have of scanning an environment and seeing what it was like and figuring out a way to make it better, whether it was restructure, redesign, training, uh, mm -hmm. leaders or executives, it was always that same skill set regardless of which industry I worked in. And I have worked in quite a few, but... I think every sector I've worked in, but it's always been doing the same kind of thing for different departments. Mm -hmm. I wonder if if your knack for organizational restructuring is tied to the way that you were uh, brought up, the way that you were raised. So I saw in an interview you did for History Makers, I believe, you were talking about how uh, your father was a very... Um, involved civil rights activists and so he took you he took the family and you guys would integrate I believe the quote is neighborhood schools and pools yes that's <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that was out there neighborhood schools and pools we integrate he he had this belief you know this was back in the 50s it was a very long time ago you were not even thought of at that point your parents might not have been thought of at that point but uh, he believed if people of different races got to know each other, they, they could get past the issue of discrimination and prejudice. Just mm -hmm. honestly believed that that was the way to make a difference. And in our community, uh, he did decide that we were going to integrate uh, one part of town. Um, matter of fact, the land he bought, I still have the papers for it, say no Negroes may buy this property. He could not get a loan in the state of Ohio. He wound up getting one in New York State to build it. He had to find a builder to build the house uh, in another city because nobody in the city would take it. And the man who did uh, build the house for us lived, uh, got death threats because he did. But we built the house. Um, uh, we integrated the schools in that area. And uh, we did. I did tell people I can't swim today because, you know, he would say, remember this one park, they don't allow, they don't allow Negroes to come. Uh, we want to integrate. All you got to do, I remember him saying, all you got to do, Bev, is just put your foot in the water. We'll be, we'll be right there behind you. Um, so we I spent a lot of time doing that. 
Uh, and in high school, there was only one other black girl in my class. And I think that was that was about it. Uh, same with the university. But you know, I've always believed in change. Mm. Uh, uh, and when you grow up like that, you kind of sort of become a little bit fearless. I remember the night we moved into that house. He he stood outside with a Winchester rifle, which I still have, all night long uh, as cars went up and down that street, yelling names and shooting off guns and that kind of stuff. But he believed that change would make a difference and that he was a change agent. And I think he raised me to be a change agent as well. Uh, and, and I hadn't thought about it that way. And I, I've always been comfortable with going places where things need to change and a willingness to try and see what I can do to make it better. Mm -hmm. And I do think, uh, thinking about it, as little psychiatrist here we have here, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, that, um, I'm sorry, there's an Amber Alert in my community. Here, oh. I gotta dismiss that. Um, uh, that uh, change is not a bad thing. That uh, sometimes change is not right, but if you're working for change for the right reasons that it can work, uh, and I do have um, uh, the ability to kind of see things differently and how they could be. And then in working with people, because I like to work with people, I do a lot. My minor was in counseling. I have a pretty good gut for people in terms of what they can handle and what they can't. And I've always used that to try and, and make that environment different. So that is something I grew up with, something I've really not been afraid of. And I guess because we were in so many situations where you never knew the outcome, Mm -hmm. But the outcome always was okay, eventually. Uh, in my own mind, I know, you know, today's a bad day, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be better tomorrow. And tomorrow sometimes may take a year or two or three, uh, but uh, there's no sense giving up. That's not why you're here. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very interesting because even I think back on when I was uh, like truly an elementary schooler or something like this. Right. And it did seem almost in my brain, it felt like it's impossible that I will make it through today. Right. You know, and I remember I was in high school and my chemistry teacher had this poster that I really hated when I first saw it. But now I look back and I'm like, oh, it's nothing's more true. It says you've survived 100% of bad days so far. That's right. And I was like, don't tell me how to feel. <laughs> but, but now you know that's true, huh? Yes, it's that's absolutely right. true. That's right. That's right. And learn something from every one of them. I think that's the thing, because if you don't, and I used to tell my staff this all the time, if you don't allow yourself to fail, you got to be comfortable with that because your greatest growth comes out of failure uh, in difficult times. Because if you don't know that, you don't, you won't know what's good. Uh, and you won't be able to feel the joy of success when it happens right. uh, if you haven't had some real downers in your life. And, and um, so you have to kind of suck it in, take them up, think, okay, I'll get something out of this and just work your way through it. And with God's grace, you do. Mm, absolutely. You mentioned a bit earlier that you have a, a good gut for people and what they can handle. Mm -hmm. Has that been... Was that innate and then it's developed or is it just purely developed? Um, I honestly think in my case, it was probably innate. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean develop that uh, everybody I'm trying to develop is happy with, <laughs> with that. because <laughs> I have been known to push people, uh, but I always tell them, you know what? If I didn't push you, I didn't care about you. 
So if you see me just ignoring you and let you do your work and, and not bother about it, it's because I'm not seeing something else in you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do believe one of the uh, things that I have a responsibility to do as a leader is to look for and identify strengths in other people and really push them to, to see if they can't reach their limit and go further than they think they can. And for the most part, that's worked out. They may not be, uh, you know, you have teachers like that even. They may not be happy at the time, but later on you realize that you were pushed beyond what you thought was your limit, but your limit is unimaginable until you actually try and do it. But I, I do, um, I don't necessarily think it's learned. I'm, so, I'm sure some of it is learned because I've been working for, I looked at it yesterday, 49 years I've been in the workforce. So wow. it's, uh, it's, it is a learned skill, but also I think uh, your gut and especially women should not avoid using their gut because I think uh, that's something that tells you something is a certain way is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Spoken like a true leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a bit of a silly question, but when, when does a person uh, get to train leaders, <laughs> for instance? So you you train leaders, you've done right. leadership programs. It's one of your areas of expertise. And right. so I'm so interested in at what point in your career did you transition from being a leader to being a leader of leaders? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. When did you make that transition? I think as you uh, work in organizations, or as you're in the workforce, when people start to see, when people start to see you as a leader, mm -hmm. uh, and start asking for support, or for advice, or for mentoring, I guess that's when that happens. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, in in my case at least, I I didn't plan ever that that was going to be the case. Um, um, so I think I think that happens when you start to see it happening naturally when other people. Uh, start to recognize it and ask for advice, opinion, or mentoring, or those kinds of things. Mm. So it, it happens organically if you do it right. And that's probably been, um, you know, quite a long time ago for me. Sure, sure. So it, it's almost, um, it's a definition given by other people. Yes, it's a good, yes, it is. It is. It's not defined by yourself because people will define themselves as leaders. I think we see that every day uh, all the time, uh, but that does not mean they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, uh, you know, you can be a great man in your own mind or a great woman in your own mind, but that does not uh, mean you are. I know sometimes I have to tell myself, I need to be sure I turn around and look to make sure there is actually somebody following me mm -hmm. uh, uh, oh. to make sure that I'm still on track. And because sometimes you're Sometimes you're not. I tell the story. Uh, I had a when I became Delta's executive director, uh, we moved to Washington, where my husband's family is, and I can remember I went to give a speech and uh, to some community group, and my husband had invited a lot of family members and his cousin. I won't say her name, so I'll give her a fake name. His his cousin Mary. Um, and family was sitting in the front of the room. You know, there to support you. Uh, she sat in the back, so. I thought, is she not feeling well? Or, you know, she didn't want to sit up front. She wasn't a shy person. So that didn't make any sense. So afterwards, I said, why, you know, why'd you sit in the back of the room? She said, girl, I had no idea if you could speak or not. I wanted to be, <laughs> I needed to see first whether or not you could actually do 
what it is you're up there to do before I was going to buy in and come up with everybody else. So, you know, I say all the time, people do that all the time with leaders or Mm -hmm. someone who's in a group. They may be the people that you're working with, the people that you that work for you, the customers that you have if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, They may be sitting in the front of the room and nodding the head, but mentally they may not be with you yet. Uh, it takes uh, for them to see you as credible before they really accept you as a leader. Just like Mary sat in that back of the room and she had to see me as a credible speaker before she was willing to join the rest of the family up front to make sure she wasn't on the wrong bus at the time. And I think that's in in leadership training I say all the time, anybody you're working with is a Mary. They uh, are not going to automatically accept you as a leader you have no credibility until you really prove yourself, whether you believe it or not. So you have to, uh, in all cases, act like the person you want to be. So the people that you want to follow you are not just following you physically, mm-hmm. but they're following you with their whole selves. Mm-hmm. And that takes a little bit of time for that to happen. Wow. Ooh, we just got a little lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It seems that you've spent a lot of time in the nonprofit sector as well. A little bit. A little yes. bit. Yes. What What were some of your favorite challenges to tackle in that sector? Oh, wow. Um, I ran a foundation at one point. I have worked for Delta Sigma Theta. Um, and in terms of nonprofits, it, financial, I'm mm-hmm. going to say. Um, because when you're working in a nonprofit world, you really have to have donors and those resources that support you uh, that are, you know, a lot of people that make donations to nonprofit will earmark it for very specific things. Uh, What's tough in nonprofits really is making sure that you have enough money on hand for the operational issues, not necessarily for the programs. And so you always have to be a fundraiser and upfront and your organization really does have to have that credibility. But the tough part, and one of the organizations I managed was a foundation, was in making sure in addition to supporting the foundation for what it did with restricted donations, Mm -hmm. that you actually had enough operating money that people were willing to donate to the organization to make sure it still existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, I'm not a fundraiser. But that is a special skill that you uh, have to have. But that's the one side of managing a nonprofit that you always have to keep your eye on. Uh, you always have to make sure that they're uh, that you're looking out for your brand. Mm. Uh, and in Delta Sigma Theta, that's one of the things that I had said initially. I want to make sure our brand stays strong because that keeps uh, keeps your members. It keeps those who support you uh, in terms of sponsorship. Uh, and uh, it keeps your credibility in the community abroad. And it's the same with any nonprofit, making sure that you are taking care of your brand Mm -hmm. uh, in the marketplace and that you're tracking how your brand is doing uh, matters, especially in the environment in the world of social media, Mm -hmm. where your brand can change overnight if somebody starts to tweet something. or or, But if people know the organization and know who you are, then they uh, then you can protect that brand somewhat from those kinds of things that happen to happen. But I'd say managing resources and managing your brand are the two most important things in terms of working with and having a successful nonprofit. Hmm. How do you go about managing, how do you go about transitioning brand if there are internal 
transitions or the opposite of how do you transition or restructure perhaps the organization um, but keep it anchored around a specific brand that oh that's a good question uh you um you really have to have a song set of goals mm. you have to know your goals uh what's most important in any organization whether it's a nonprofit or another kind is that the team that you have that works with you and for you has to know and understand those goals and also believes in the same vision you do. Uh, you have to be able to articulate a simple vision mm. in what you're doing. Uh, and everybody who's in the organization has to know and understand that vision. Uh, and I will use Delta as an example. When I became national president, I wanted to make sure I had a vision that was a simple vision statement that people would know and understand, but it really met what we stood for. And so our vision is join our sisterhood, power in our voice, service in our heart. Uh, and the foundation of it really is that everybody has to feel a joy in our sisterhood. They got to be happy that they actually are a part of the organization. And that's something we have to work on all the time because we're sisters and black women. And that's not always the easiest thing to do uh, mm -hmm. because we're all strong willed in terms of who we are because it's that kind of group. But, you know, like sisters fight every day, but they still get along. So joy in the sisterhood in terms of making sure that you have that foundation. Power in our voice. Uh, we are very active in social action. Uh, and uh, making sure that we use our voice to empower others is critically important and a foundation for us. So making sure there is power in our voice and that we use the strength in our numbers to make sure we make change in the community is most important. Uh, and service in our heart because we're founded on um, first act was suffragette march, so that's the social that's the social action part. But making sure communities are strong so service in our heart really means we have a heart for community every organization has to have something that those who work with it and for it can rally around so the vision of a leader and how you articulate it is most important uh having goals and working together and communicating within your organization so that everybody understands the goals everybody understands their piece of the goals everybody knows how to measure those goals so they are able to identify when they're successful and when they're not uh, is most important because if they can't see uh, themselves as a major part of the organization and know what they've contributed as a contributor then they fall by the wayside or they just kind of do their rope job every day but they don't really feel the ownership that you need to have for a nonprofit especially one just starting uh, it really is and and for any business that you start it really is up to the founders of that business, the leaders of that nonprofit, uh, to make sure that they have a clear vision of where they want to go and what they want to do, and that the people that are there have the same set of values that they do, and that they're able to understand and buy in and own that vision and own those goals just as much as the leadership does. Uh, without that, it takes a long time, if ever, to be successful. Um, the organization and the people in it have to be comfortable with conflict. You know, I mentioned about sisters arguing and fighting with each other. You, you know, you can't get to, if you don't value and respect the mindset and the ideas of everybody, you may think they're absolutely the dumbest thing you've ever heard. But you got to respect the person who brought it to the table because out of that idea may come, if you talk together, another idea that's even bigger and better than the one they had. Mm -hmm. So respect for what everybody brings to the table and a willingness to be open and listen to that is really important. People want to be respected. They want to feel they have credibility. Uh, they want to feel that they're a contributor. And without that, you can't really thrive. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. 
Wow, I'm learning so much. <laughs> That's those 49 years <laughs> of working, right? Absolutely. <laughs> hmm. So when you founded the HR group, mm -hmm. um, you founded that with your husband, correct? He, he started the company first. Okay. He always wanted to have his own business. I mean, he mm -hmm. talked about it for years when we got married. I think probably he started in 89. I joined it in 96. That's when we started a consulting side and he switched the type of business he did to be more uh, learning and more uh, leadership development as well as the regular HR business that he has and the training that he does for that. Cool. What parallels did you see between entrepreneurship and uh, let's say working in education? Working in? In education, like adjacent to education. Um, not as many parallels as in education as it was in corporate America, I would have to ah. say. Mm -hmm. um, the parallels in, edu well, the, the type of education, let me take that back. The type of education I was in, right. in terms of university administration, there were a lot of parallels in terms of um, credibility, mm -hmm. um, branding what you were doing, uh, and making sure that you had, you know, this is the thing about business, it's a little bit different. Just because you like something doesn't mean you should go in business for, for it. So, you know, and I, I know you've heard the stories before because it's in a lot of books. Because you like to bake pies doesn't mean you should own a bakery because if you don't have any kind of business acumen, Mm -hmm. but you just like to bake pies, you're not going to be successful because after a while, even if you are successful, you making 10,000 pies is not going to satisfy anymore because the original thing you enjoy doing, you're not there. So you really have to make a decision in terms of what it is you enjoy doing because business for yourself is hard. Most small businesses fail within the first three to five years. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they do require you to um, have some good stamina to be able to uh, withstand the good days and the bad days and make sure you have the financials in place to be able to handle that or manage that or that your partner does mm -hmm. uh, in terms of making it go. And you, it's a lot of hard work when you get started. You put in a long, long days and night and you have to, you have to find people who want your services. So a decent amount of analysis work to figure out what kind of business you should have. Uh, there has to be a need for it is most important. This right now, is an ideal time and opportunity to go into a business venture. Um, because the new normal, a lot of people who are furloughed, those companies are gonna restructure. I've been through this too many times in terms of uh, downtimes with business. And when businesses have downtimes, they restructure, they get smaller, they start different units, mm -hmm. or they may decide, you know what, we really need a different skill set than we have today. Uh, we need more tech people than we have, so we're gonna eliminate some of the ones that aren't. Uh, so uh, determining for people to who want to do something different aren't happy with where they are uh, taking the time to think about what is it I want what would make me happy uh, I don't want to have a boss anymore I want to do this on my own and be my own person uh, understanding what that means and how hard that is uh, by talking to other people who own or started businesses and making sure that you're starting a business that there's actually a real life market for Mm -hmm. um, is most important. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it's like my daughter, uh, she's a psychologist, but she wanted, she realized that her children's school had a need for uh, a counseling department they didn't have. She says, but they don't have that in that 
organization. They don't have it at the school she's at. I said, well, create it. Give them a business plan that says you have a need. You need this kind of skill set to support the school. Here's a business plan, how I can bring this to the school. And um, she wound up creating her own job within a work environment where her children were uh, for her first job. But she saw a need and she knew she had the skill set to do it, prepared a proposal and presented it and said, I think you need this. Here's why. Here's what you got to do. It's the same with any business. You have to be able to identify that need to make sure it's sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're going to transition into the seedling round, which is where small questions lead to tasty answers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what has been your favorite community position? Oh, what has been my favorite? Well, you know, if I didn't say Delta Sigma Theta, someone would shoot me. Uh, <laughs> so, but in all honesty, that has been, it's, it's probably been, uh, the toughest because this is a difficult time to to have a position like that, but it's allowed me to use uh, a lot of the different skills I learned in different positions along the way. Mm -hmm. And so I'd have to say that that has been, this has been most rewarding for me. So I, I, I have to say this. Oh, that's lovely. Even though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your favorite genre of book? Oh, um, I like mysteries. Um, I like, um, uh, James Patterson. I'm sitting here looking at the wall. I have, uh, I'm a, a book fanatic. Mm -hmm. Last count we had, I think I had maybe, oh, there's probably over a thousand, 2000 books in this house. It's really wow. awful. Um, my husband was so happy when, um, when Kindle, when the Kindle came, because we have hundreds of hardbacks. <laughs> Uh, books, but uh, I don't get a chance to read much anymore, but I, I like James Patterson. Uh, I don't get a chance to read as many biographies as I'd like to, but I like a good, uh, a, a good mystery book. I'm not probably the only books I don't, I'm not into romance books at all. Mm -hmm. That's uh, probably the, my least favorite. I do read business books, but they're okay, necessarily. <laughs> uh, they're all right. But I'm you probably around. don't really need them at this point. No, I don't. And and those are the ones probably if I lost anything, I'd probably get rid of the whole the whole stack. There's a whole stack over here that uh I have. That's probably the ones I would uh lose the most. But mm -hmm. I I read a lot of anything, to be honest with you. Uh I'm just a re I love Harry Potter. Really? I, oh my gosh. I mean, I was the first one at the stores, me and the little kids, the first one at the stores when those books came out, <laughs> because I've got the first edition. Of all of them. Uh, uh -huh. So that, um, that was one that I just, I mean, I just really, so I like that kind of book. And I've got, you know, been to all the movies several times. Uh -huh. um, I do like, <laughs> I do like children's movies. <laughs> so <laughs> I have my, my minion is around here somewhere. So here's my minion. So I'm into, uh, I'm into I love to, the only people that really pay attention to me ever is my little minion I have. This is Bob. So uh -huh. with me. Uh, now we're getting to the third part. Um, so uh, I've, got, I've got an eclectic, I think, environment of the things I like. So. Mm. Which uh, Hogwarts house are you? Uh, you know, that's a good question. But I think maybe I'm Gryffindor. Huh. I'm not really sure, but I think that's probably where I'd, I'd land, I think, if I was landing anywhere. I might land in a, one other one, but I think Harry and I were probably. I'm, a, I'm the, kind of the adventuresome type, so. Oh, excellent. I think I'd be there. <laughs> uh, 
What would you guess that my house is? Let me think. I think it would be, um, oh gosh. I can't think of the, I think, I can't think of the one that I'm thinking of, although it might be Gryffindor. Hmm. Uh, because I see you kind of as a Hermione type person. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So I see you as a strong Hermione. So I think I can see you right there, actually. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely see that. I can see you with you with uh, Harry. Yes, yes. I see you as Hermione. So I put you in the same. We'd be right there. We'd be right awesome. there. Awesome. Third build. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and then. My last question for the seedling round is, what does flow look like for you? What does flow look like? Mm-hmm. I think when a, a plan comes together and when you've been working at it for a while to get major things, we have very large events um, and um, with a lot of people, you know, 15, 20,000 people, when, when when things are just moving along. I mean, when you've planned, you know, I do believe in Stephen Covey and the seven habits. I think when you sharpen the saw mm-hmm. and you really work the plan and you put things in the right order and you take the time to make sure you give yourself enough time to make it work and you give people enough time to meet their deadlines and everybody knows what their part is of what, and it just runs and people are happy and you can see people working a plan, even if it's a big plan or a little plan and they're in it mm-hmm. and um, seeing themselves comfortable and happy with their part in terms of what happened with it. And in the end, they can say, wow, that, that was great. We did it. Yeah. That's, that's flow. That's mm. a good flow. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> good flow. This concludes the seedling round. Pew, pew, pew. Well, thank you. um yes thank you so much for sharing time with me right now thank you for these hot tips that you gave us you're very welcome you're very welcome yeah um any parting words or do you want to perhaps plug anything you know i um i think what i'd say right now to anybody is don't don't ever give up on yourself um put yourself out there. Don't be afraid of that. Uh, I think sometimes because we get put down by others, particularly people of colors, we start to believe the hype that everybody else uh, says. And as I said earlier, uh, don't let other people define who you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really is important that you define yourself and then live that definition. And in the end, it really doesn't matter. You know, if somebody else isn't happy with it or has something to say, that's actually their problem, not yours. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can't take on the other burdens that people put on us. Uh, we have to uh, really make sure that we're comfortable with our own flow. And that's hard to do because even in the times when it's tough, if you're still comfortable with who you are and that you feel you can sleep at night in terms of what you do and how you did what you did, then you know it's going to be okay. Uh, but I, I think that's where sometimes we let social media or sometimes we let other people or sometimes we let the people that we deal with define who we are, and that's not their job. That's mm-hmm. ours. Um, the other thing I'm going to share, particularly for um, our brothers and sisters, we don't take care of ourselves physically. Mm. And I, 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 this is the uh, 
pot calling the kettle black right this time because I don't, I don't do a good job of that myself because I run too much in terms of doing things. But uh, we can't, uh, it, there's a saying that says, if you don't take care of your body, where are you going to live? Yeah. And we don't necessarily do that. Uh, we have the highest rate of every everything, you know, diabetes, obesity, all those things, hypertension are, are all things that uh, people of color tend to have against them. And part of it is the communities where we live and what resources are available uh, in terms of even the food we have. Um, we've got to be, if we're going to be a strong people, we have to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves, that we're getting exercise, that we're uh, focusing on mental health, that we're, we have some sort of spiritual life, regardless of what it is or who it is you believe in, that there is someone outside of yourself that you believe in that you can turn to. Uh, so that self-care is also most important. And if you have that, then defining yourself is a lot easier because you're strong mentally, physically, and spiritually. Mm. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you have a lovely day. You too. Yeah. And thank you. Mm -hmm. Stay in touch, okay? I would love to. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Take care. Hello. Welcome to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you. I hope that you got something out of this. And if you learned something, if you laughed, if you even just like my energy, please rate, review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. That will really help for this podcast and this community to grow. That helps me get more guests, and it means I can give you more of this delicious content. Much love, Athena Sayaka.